Well, good morning. Welcome again to South Suburban Christian Church. We're really glad that you joined us uh, to uh, worship together today on a very special today, day today. Today is actually Pentecost Sunday. Uh, Pentecost actually is a Jewish holiday. It started out uh, for us Christians as uh, a day when we came together, like all of those who uh, are followers of Moses and the law, uh, to celebrate the gift of the law. Uh, and it was on this day of this Jewish celebration that the Christians were gathered when a sound like a mighty rushing wind came. The Holy Spirit is given. The church is birthed. And so for Christians, Pentecost now is a holiday in which we celebrate the gift of the Spirit. And throughout Scripture, the Spirit is closely aligned with grace. And so you have this beautiful, beautiful imagery of our Hebrew forebears celebrating the gift of the law and the church now celebrating the gift of grace. Law and grace, law and gospel, they have been an important uh, partnership uh, throughout the history of the church. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the founders of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, talked a great deal about the close connection between law and grace. Law shows us our need for a Savior, and grace confirms in our lives that indeed God has been faithful. We have been justified, sanctified, and called for His purpose and His purpose alone. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been leading up to this day of Pentecost and our series, When the Spirit Moves, and we have been focused on what it means to be an Acts chapter 2 church. And that, of course, is a reference to Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, uh, right after uh, he's received the gift of the uh, Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, when he begins to proclaim the gospel, uh, people come accepting Christ. God is adding thousands day by day. And then Luke, the writer of Acts, describes what the church in its infancy looked like, that we devoted ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, which is the Lord's Supper, or Holy Communion, and to the prayers. So today is the day that we've been leading up to. Today is Pentecost Sunday. So if you have your Bibles, we want to look at that uh, in Acts chapter 2. Uh, it's verses 1 through 21. I'm not going to read all of those verses. I'm just going to be reading uh, through verse 13, but I'd encourage you, uh, to take some time and read the entire chapter. For that matter, just go ahead and keep reading through the book of Acts. A wonderful, powerful book. One of my favorite books. So if you found uh, the text in Acts chapter 2, uh, let's read together God's Word. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire, appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? 
Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, Ah, they are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to take some time this morning uh, to dig a little bit more deeply into who the Holy Spirit is, what the Holy Spirit's purpose is in our life, and ways in which we sometimes miss that purpose. Over these past six or seven weeks that we have been uh, dealing with this as we have been worshiping online with you here today, uh, one of the nice things about this method of communication is it has allowed all of us to explore the preaching and topics that other pastors and other congregations are, are delving with and dealing with over the, this season. And that goes for us preachers as well. I know that I've enjoyed taking time and, and signing on to the live stream services of some of my colleague pastors and listening to them and hearing them break the bread of life, the Word of God, uh, listening to them as they uh, seek to proclaim what the Spirit has laid on their hearts and how we uh, navigate our way through this season of inconceivability, this season of pandemic. I'm also grateful for those colleagues of mine who took the time to reach out to me and engage with me on the topic of the Holy Spirit. That they, They've sharpened me, they, they've asked questions, good questions, that, that led me to think more deeply about this topic, uh, as well as uh, offering their perspectives, which have been... Uh, very helpful as well. I haven't gotten back to all of them that have emailed me yet, but it is certainly true that uh, of the many issues that the Church of Jesus Christ deals with, uh, the topics around the Holy Spirit are certainly at the top of the list. And when we start talking about the Holy Spirit, well, at least for us pastors, that always seems to raise uh, uh, the queries and the questions of of, well, why are you saying it that way, and, and what's that all about, and how does that fit into everyday life? In a few weeks, we're going to be starting a new online class, uh, among many other classes, but one that I'll be teaching, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm calling it the Grammar of Faith, and we've gone round and round about uh, whether we should call it that name, but I want to call it the Grammar of Faith uh, because uh, I, I, I know the name can sound a little frightening. I mean, when you hear the word grammar, you you think about grammar class maybe when you were in school and diagramming sentences, and we all know how much we love diagramming sentences, although there are a few of us, well, like me, who actually enjoys diagramming sentences. But the word grammar, uh, really, that word literally means, well, the basics. In a classical understanding, grammar is the terms or the definitions by which a conversation can occur. So, for example, in the past couple of, of weeks, I've seen lots of news stories, you may have as well, uh, where folks have been taking up new hobbies. And the two top hobbies that folks have been taking up during this season of, 
of safer at home and, and those sorts of things, has been gardening and baking. And, uh, you know, there's a grammar to both of those hobbies. I mean, when you start gardening, you need to know what a rake is or what a hoe is, a shovel, soil, seeds. Uh, when you talk about baking, you need to know a little bit about uh, uh, flour, water, yeast, uh, measuring cups, baking times, and temperatures. And all of those things that I've just mentioned are nothing more than grammar. They're the grammar of gardening, the grammar of baking. They're just the basic words that we all need to understand and have a shared definition about when we talk about the greater issues of what it means to have a garden filled with vegetables or, or whatever it is you want to grow, or bread that is baked to perfection. The same is true in faith. There is a grammar of faith. That is, there's a way the church has talked about what we believe, what we do, and what God does, and who God is. And too often we understand the Holy Spirit using the wrong grammar. We think of the Holy Spirit as a force. You know, sort of like Obi-Wan Kenobi saying to Luke, uh, use the force. As if the force is something that we can exploit or, or use for our own good. Well, the Bible is very clear about these sorts of things. And throughout the centuries, the church also has been very clear about who the Spirit is. Not what the Spirit is, but who the Spirit is. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. If you, if you don't want to do that, write that down so that you can go back and look at this. In Ephesians 4, 30. Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, and he says these words, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, now that word grieve literally means to cause pain. We understand that. We've all had that experience. When we are emotionally hurt by someone, or when we are told things, uh, about someone that we love or care about that we're not proud of, something that maybe our children did that embarrasses us or we wish our children hadn't done. It causes us pain. You know what that feels like. It's a normal part of being a living, breathing human being made in the image of God. But what does that mean? Well, if Paul is telling us that we need to be cautious about grieving the Holy Spirit, that tells us that the Holy Spirit isn't a thing, but a who. A person, if you will, who can experience the heartache of pain. It tells us that God feels pain. In the context of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, it means that the Holy Spirit feels pain. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means, and here's the first point for us to remember today, the Holy Spirit is a person. Not a thing, not an imitation or an emanation of something that is beyond human conception necessarily, not a force, not something that's used for just a particular purpose, like a tool or a shovel, but the Holy Spirit is a person. The church has described the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Trinity. That is, God the Holy Spirit. Now, that's quite consistent with Scripture. And what are those things that might cause the Holy Spirit to grieve? 
Well, if you keep reading in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul actually gives us some of those things beginning in verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And how we react to the world and the situations around us, how you and I react in our everyday life impacts the Holy Spirit. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more later in our message today. But how we treat one another either brings joy or grief to the Holy Spirit. Not only is the Holy Spirit a person, Let's go back to the book of Acts. That's where we've been spending these last couple of weeks. If you look at Acts chapter 13, verse 2. If you don't have your Bibles, write that down, because I'd like you to go back and read that as well. Acts chapter 13, verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, in this text, the Holy Spirit is speaking. Speaking requires thought, understanding, desire, intentionality. Not only is the Holy Spirit speaking, but the Spirit commands that two people be set apart for a work. And we know what that work is. It is God's work, and that that work that God has set before not only these two folks, but the whole church, is the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ or the preaching of the gospel. We realize that in the aftermath uh, of of this text, we see all of what Paul and Barnabas are called to do. This is what the Holy Spirit has called them to do. And here in that text, in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit uses the pronoun I. That is, I have called them. This means that the Holy Spirit is claiming rightfully His authority as God, which of course makes sense and leads us to our second point. The Holy Spirit is God. So not only is the Holy Spirit a person, but the Holy Spirit is God. God the Holy Spirit. Now this answers the first question, who is the Holy Spirit? albeit very quickly and succinctly, we could spend hours and hours and hours talking about the further ramifications of that. But the Holy Spirit is a person, and the Holy Spirit is God. Or as we like to say, He is God the Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But what is the Holy Spirit's purpose in our life? Now, over the past several weeks, we have answered that question to some extent. In the, some of the early uh, sermons that uh, were preached, we saw that uh, uh, Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit as the comforter or the advocate. You might remember me introducing another word, another grammatical word, the paraclete. Uh, the, the, the person who stands with us, who, who defends us, who, who steps in front of us to, to defend our actions and who we are and what we've done. 
But if we're not careful, when we hear that word comforter, we can begin looking at the Holy Spirit as some sort of personal assistant who, who makes our life better. Now, remember when Jesus introduces the Holy Spirit as the advocate or the comforter, that's in John chapter 16, Jesus then goes on to say what it is the Holy Spirit does. And here's what He says. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That is, the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, now that word convict there doesn't mean to, to declare guilty as if you're convicted in a court of law, but the, the, the sense of conviction that we have that eureka or that aha moment, that we recognize our own brokenness, that we recognize the brokenness of the relationship between us and our Redeemer and our Maker, God the Father, God the Son. That is, is the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to show us our need for a Savior. That's a little more than stark, isn't it? When we think about what it is to believe in God the Holy Spirit. The Spirit causes us to recognize our need for salvation. In the early years of the church, after the Council of Nicaea, so about 400 years after the church has been birthed and is existing, the church began to use another phrase to talk about the Holy Spirit. It's actually reflected in the Nicene Creed. Many of you uh, may say that in your regular church services, or at least have heard of it. And the Holy Spirit is mentioned there, the Lord, the giver of life. Well, that makes sense. That's a natural conclusion of when we think about the Holy Spirit as breath or wind, which is another grammatical introduction of who the Holy Spirit is and what it is the Holy Spirit does in some of our preceding messages. It reminds me of Paul's sermon at the Areopagus just a few weeks ago where he made the comparison that it is in God in whom we live, move, and have our being. We live, we exist because of God. That God is the one that pushes breath in us and pulls breath out of us again. In Acts chapter 4, verse 31, we see the powerful manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Here, Peter and John have been dragged before the council to explain why they continue to preach the gospel after they've been told repeatedly to stop preaching the gospel. And in verse 31 we read, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaking, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. And this is what leads us to our third point. What is it that the Holy Spirit does in our life? What is the purpose in our life? The Holy Spirit calls us to preach boldly. Not just an endeavor uh, that, that it's laid upon the shoulders of, of pastors or elders, but all of us. That really shouldn't surprise us. Here in Acts chapter 2 that was read this morning, the very first thing that happened when the Holy Spirit came upon the believers is that they began to speak with other tongues. Now, now these tongues, th that is the ability to speak the gospel in other languages. 
You remember the, the sentence that was in that text. And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And then a list of all of the, the lands, the, the different languages from which people came and could hear the gospel in the language that they knew. You know, Christianity has been a faith that others have sought to redefine in more culturally appropriate ways than the way in which we were birthed. We are, at our essence, a faith of multiplication. Listen, as Christians, we believe that God has entered into humanity's life in an amazing and miraculous way. That the sovereign God of the universe, the one true God, clothed Himself with flesh and dwelt among us. The Incarnation. We celebrate that every Christmas. In the person of Jesus Christ, God is with us. Which echoes the words of the prophets way back in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. And yes, God did teach us the fullness of His Word found in the Law and in the prophets. But because of God's holiness and because of our brokenness, God was victorious over sin and death, even death on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins, so that our relationship with Him could be restored as it was on the very first day we were created. You see, that's a powerful message. It's a message uh, that, that declares a truth about human experience. That the God of the universe cares so much for you that He was willing to step out of His divinity and clothe Himself with our humanity so that we could be in relationship with Him. Now that's something that's got to be proclaimed. That's something that no other religion declares. Every other faith on the planet tells us how you can be good enough to get to God. But Christianity declares how we could never get to Him. And so God came to us. Now, all of us are called to proclaim that. We're all preachers, if you will. We are the people who speak hope to a world that is too often focused on death, on itself, on greed. And being in this world, being in that context, being inundated with all of the images of false hope and false success, well, they can take a toll on us. They can weigh us down. They can wear us out. And here, the final question is answered. In what ways do we miss the purpose of the Holy Spirit? Well, we could do a sermon series just on that alone, and maybe someday we will. But if you take all of those issues found in Scripture, all of the ways where we miss the purpose of the Holy Spirit, the ways that we grieve the Holy Spirit, the ways that we quench the Holy Spirit, all phrases that are used in the New Testament, particularly by the Apostle Paul, I think that you could summarize all of those instances down to one word. And that word is anxiety that is not just a fear of the uncertainty of life or the events that surround us but a struggle 
a visceral struggle where we have to discern whether or not God is trustworthy. Can I really trust God at His Word? I wonder if that's the root of the anxiety in the life of the believer, at least specifically. Now, throughout Scripture, we're told not to be anxious. Time and time again, when we had done things displeasing to God, it almost always can be traced back to anxiety. A distrust that God will be faithful to His Word. I have a good friend, Dr. Ralph Hawkins. He's a professor of archaeology. He wrote a fabulous book. I I highly recommend this book to you. It's entitled, Leadership Lessons, Avoiding the Pitfalls of King Saul. In one of his chapters, he talks about an event that is recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 13. King Saul, the first king of the united Israel, is about to enter into battle. He's been told to wait for the prophet and priest Samuel to come and make the sacrifice that was necessary before the armies would engage in battle for the war. But Samuel hadn't arrived yet, and Saul is nervous. The enemy army is just over the the ridge over there, and they're ready to do battle. And all of the people that are looking to Saul for uh, wisdom and safety and confidence and assurance that he can be victorious over this enemy and, and defend them from, from a fate which might likely be death, begin to tremble with fear, the text says. And it's in those moments when we find ourselves in the same kind of situation as King Saul where, where we feel like we should do something, but we're not sure what it is that we should do, that when we feel like we've lost control and we need to reclaim the rights and freedoms that are ours, when we find ourselves in that moment, that's when we begin to make mistakes. So in Saul's anxiety, as Saul feared that God would not be faithful to His Word, he decided that he would offer the sacrifice. And as soon as he did, here comes Samuel walking down the road. And Samuel tells him what his actions of impatience and anxiety that got the best of him would have on the rest of his life. For King Saul would lose his kingdom. Too often we think that God's faithfulness should be not for only those things we need, but for those things that we want. Now, In our hearts, in our minds, we understand the flaw of that kind of thinking. When, when we're not in the crisis, we understand and, uh, how that's not what we're called to do or to be. And, and we can say to ourselves, we're going to do everything we can to prevent that from happening when, when it comes our way. But crisis always comes when we're not expecting it. And it's in those moments when worry is birthed, when anxiety begins to overwhelm us, and we begin to take responsibility for all of those things that God said He would take care of. And harder moments 
We may even be able to rightfully describe it as blatant disobedience. Unbelief in His Word, a presumption that we have the right to intrude on the province and providence that is God's alone. And this can lead us to assume that our lives require human wisdom. And we reject the counsel of God. We can be tempted to use wrong means to fulfill our desires. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon, known as the Prince of Preachers, once said, Anxiety makes us doubt God's loving kindness, and thus our love to Him grows cold. We feel mistrust and thus grieve the Spirit of God so that our prayers become hindered, our consistent example marred, and in our life we only seek what is good for ourselves. There's that phrase again. <laughs> grieve the Spirit of God. And it reminds us of Paul's warning in Ephesians 4. Now, I'm not one to seek to drive home a negative perspective at a point in a message. So let's, for just a few seconds, think about this more deeply. In Acts 13, 52, Luke writes, The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And that's my final point for you today. The Holy Spirit calls us to joy. Not, not just happiness. Not, not some emotional response to the events of the day. But a joy. That even in the midst of our anxiety, even in the midst of our worry, even in the midst of our uncertainty, we trust what is God's and that God's will will be done and that God will be glorified and that our love for God outweighs anything else that anyone could do to us. Now this is a lesson that you might be saying, well, how do I get that? Well, there's no prayer that I can give you that will suddenly give it to you. There's no Scripture verse that I can send you to that if you read it, you'll completely understand and you'll be a spiritual powerhouse. I can only tell you what not only do I understand from God's Word, but from my own experience, and it's this. Spiritual maturity, growth in the Holy Spirit occurs and constancy and constant faithfulness and putting one foot in front of the other every day sometimes stumbling and feeling the arms of God lift us back up sometimes angry and frustrated with a clenched fist shaking toward heaven but never ever stop walking Never stop following. Never forsake 
the call of the Spirit in your life. If you haven't made Jesus Christ Lord of your life, will you do that today? I'm not going to promise you wealth, riches, or fame. As a matter of fact, for some of you, there may be pain. There may be some loss. There may be persecution. There may be martyrdom. But I can promise you this. It is a life of worth, of meaning. A life that is rooted in the truth. The truth of God the Father, Creator of all that is. The truth of God the Son, the Redeemer. And the truth of God the Holy Spirit, our Sanctifier. The power behind what it means to proclaim boldly the good news of Jesus Christ. If you've made that decision today, if you've answered yes to this question, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and do you accept Him as your Lord and Savior? If you've said yes to that today, will you let us know so that we can walk with you and partner with you that you might live a life of constancy and faithfulness as well for God's glory and by His grace. May we continue and the walking with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Will you pray with me? Merciful God, what a daunting invitation to be asked to follow You. In a moment in time, each of Your disciples needed to answer that question for themselves. Some walked away from their livelihoods, Others walked away from a life of of excess and, and, and wealth to follow You. And yet, O God, they followed You into the glory of truth, into the glory of eternal life. Thank You for calling us to follow You. In Jesus' name, amen.